Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Hubricane Podcast. Now for those of you that are new here, my name is Simon Osimo and you can join me for weekly conversations with some really interesting people as I explore their personal stories, transformations and experiences that help educate, inform and inspire. Now in today's episode, I'm joined by Lester Young who runs Path to Redemption in South Carolina where he helps people recently released from prison integrate back into society. But Lester's personal journey wasn't always a straight path. An argument with his mother one night when he was just 16 changed Lester's lives forever, when his mum tragically died the following day, denying Lester the opportunity to say that he was sorry. His life started to spiral out of control, and at 19 he was selling drugs, when an argument one day with another drug dealer ended when Lester took someone else's life. Now I think you'll find this an incredible journey of transformation and redemption. But before we dive into this week's content, let me remind you that you can listen to this podcast wherever you consume your content, and the video can be found on my YouTube channel, at Simon Osimo. Now, if you get something from this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would like and share with your circle of influence. Okay, so let's dive into this week's conversation as I talk with Lester Young from Path to Redemption. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. We should start off by saying that um, you were incarcerated for 22 years for mm-hmm. a murder, and we'll, we'll come on to more details about that a bit, a bit later. Um, yeah, and you've been released, is it about six years now, Lester, yeah. you've been out of incarceration? May 15th of this year will be six, it's six years for me. Six years, okay, well, so you just had that anniversary. Um, but I, I want to go back a little bit before we sort of touch on, on that story, because there was a significant event, really, which led up to you sort of being incarcerated and going back uh, a few years. You incarcerated at nine years old, mm-hmm. um, but your mother passed when you were 16. So do you mind telling us a bit about that sort of traumatic time with your mother? Yeah, um, I always say that uh, when we want to look at someone to try to understand why do they make the choices in which they make, sometimes you got to like do some step back and try to figure out what was that thing that shifted them. And for me, I always look at the the demise or the death or the passing of my mother was that thing that shifted me in the wrong direction because I, I, I during her death or during the process of the grieving, I never grieved really. I never really t- talked to anyone about the pain that I was enduring. Uh, didn't really understand why she had to die the way she died. Um, just it was a lot of mixed emotions, and and it shut. It caused me to shut down. It caused my father to shut down. It caused my whole family to shut down emotionally for this. And it was basically everyone was just for themselves. Basically, you know, just we living still in the same house, but it was not a conversation that we had. And because of that, I just went into the streets. For me, mine was going into the streets and expressing my anger and seeking acceptance from my peers that was in the neighborhood with me. And that began that journey of me embracing criminal activities. Yeah, and I guess one thing, I'll give you a book, a little plug here, Lester. You know, I, I read your book. It's a fascinating read, The Five Stages of Incarceration. And one of the key things that I picked up on, I, I want make, to make sure that people understand, is that, you know, you were 16 when your mother passed. Mm-hmm. But there was a significant incident the night before your mother passed leading to her passing yeah. that day. Do you mind just sharing a bit about that story as to uh, maybe how you became aware that your mum had would pass. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was a normal day, me getting out of school, and we all, me and my three sisters, we had chores that we have to do before we go outside, and my chores that day was washing dishes, and I was like, I came home, dropped my book bag, ready to run out of the house. My mom was sick, but we didn't know how, how sick she was. 
So she she called my name and she asked me to wash the dishes. I was like, I'll wash them later. You know, and we just got in. She's like, you're going to wash them now. I'm like, I'm going to wash them later. I'm going outside to play with my friends. But anyway, I eventually uh, agreed to wash. I eventually went and washed the dishes, but I was washing the dishes mad. And, you know, as a 60-year-old, you dropping the dishes harder to sink, you know, just doing that stuff just to just to hurry up and get out. So once I got through with the dishes, I ran out the house. And that entire day, I mean, I went out, played with my friends, came back into the house. I didn't say anything to my mom. I didn't say anything till I was mad with her because she didn't want to let me go outside until I washed the dishes. She fixed us dinner. I still did not say anything to my mom. I did not say anything to her. Went to bed, didn't say anything to her because I was expecting my mom is the type of woman that she would she would come and apologize to any of her kids if she felt that something was wrong. We would never go to bed without that type of uh, mad uh, anger or whatever towards one another, upset. But this particular night, she didn't come in my room and say goodnight. She didn't come say anything. Me as a as a as an immature sixteen year old, not understanding that why she didn't come in the room and say anything because she was sick. She wasn't. She wasn't. She wasn't at a full strength, full capacity. And I went to sleep that night. Woke up the next morning. My father woke me and my three sisters up and said, "Hey, um, asked me being that I was the oldest. He said I need you to stay with your mom. She's not feeling good. I'm going to come back and take her to the hospital." Me out of stubbornness, immature. And I was like, "No, I'm not staying home because of that disagreement we had for the dishes." I walked, got dressed. I'm not a per I was not a person that loved school. So you know something was wrong with me when I'm running out of the house to go to school. That was, you know, but I was doing that just to get a response from my mom, which again, she did not give me the response that I wanted. And the reason why is not that she didn't want to because she was weak. She wasn't feeling well. I was didn't take the time to go and check into the room to see how my mom's feeling. Didn't say, Hey Ma, I love you. Goodbye. I'll see you tomorrow today, later today. I didn't say any of that. I left. Maybe three hours later. One of my cousins came to pick me up from school, and on the way, when I got to the car, I saw two, three, two of my sisters inside of the car, and I was like, "What's going on?" And they was like, "Um, he didn't tell you." I was like, "No, what? Did, what are you supposed to tell me?" He's like, "Mom died. That's why we going to the house." I was like, "Mom died." You know, I couldn't believe that was like, blew my mind. Like I wow. didn't walk yeah. to the door that morning expecting that my mom would die. You know what I'm saying? I, I that I would come home and she would no longer be physically on this earth. I did not, that did not ever enter into my mind. You know, you think about your parents, you're expecting your parents to live to to old age, not my mom died when she was 36 years old in her sleep, basically. So it's like, how do you process that? You know, and that was the thing that I could not express to anyone the pain that I was feeling. It took years, years of me going through being incarcerated to discover that, man, I the reason why I made the choices that I made was because of this particular pain that I was processing at 16 years old. Yeah, because there's a lot of, I mean, it's like a movie, really, where, you know, what's going to happen is that, you know, the, the parent never says, I love you to the child, or a child never says, I love you to the parent, and it's the last time that they see them, and there's this there's this scene where the, the child is just again, I wish I'd said this, and, and, and the parent is the same. But, you know, you've actually been there. I mean, as a 16-year-old, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you didn't know shame at the time, but what, what were some of the emotions that you were feeling knowing that, you know, your mum was ill, you'd almost ignored her illness, and you'd, you'd sort of, she passed without you being able to say those words, I'm sorry, again, you know, it's like a movie, but you didn't have an opportunity to say that. How, as a 16-year-old, what, what were you thinking? I was, a, it was, it was a numbness that came across me. It was a numbness. I remember looking at my father, looking at my relatives who was there that day when we pulled up in the yard. It was a numbness. I couldn't believe it. I was in disbelief. Even through the whole funeral process, I still was in disbelief of that. 
even me watching my mom be placed in, in six feet under was still a disbelief for me. I could not believe that. You know, so I remember leaving that funeral that day and I was still in disbelief, you know, even, yeah, I just, I couldn't believe that my mom's passed away and she now is no longer on this earth and I have three other sisters on this earth with me and my father. How are we going to cope with my mom with that woman that was the glue to our family? You know, so yeah. disbelief for me and then that disbelief just turned into a level of anger for me. I became very angry. And that anger was more self-inflicted because I started blaming myself. And at 16 years old, you start telling yourself these narratives in your head. You start believing them. It starts driving you crazy. You start acting out to try to run away from that pain to numb the pain yeah. yourself. Yeah, and one of the things that I find really interesting is that in those preceding years, so from 16 to 19 when you were arrested for, for the murder, there mm -hmm. was convictions in between. Mm -hmm. And you said to me something that we hear quite a lot, that you were crying out for some, some support and help, mm -hmm. but no one ever said to you, you know, how are you feeling? If they had asked, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Chances are you would have tried to have shared with someone the emotions that you're, you're feeling. And that's really interesting. I mean, tell us about, you know, how did that develop? Why, why could you not say to someone in the criminal justice system, hey, I'm struggling here, I need help? rather than just thinking, well, here's another young troubled guy who's, you know, selling drugs, who's committing yeah. crime, uh, and he's just going to go through the system. Why, why could you not say anything, Lester? At 17 years old, most, you know, just like not only just 17 years, prison, the prison uh, criminal justice system, or, yeah, the prison system is set up. They just see everyone as a herd, as like they're a part of a herd of sheep, cows, whatever that is. They just run you into a system, and they don't have time to ask the question like, People are not trained to ask people who have committed a crime or acting out like, what's wrong? What happened? We're not trained that. We're trained to address the response, not trying to understand the core of the behavior. So when I went into that system, they did exactly what the system had trained them to do, and that's to address the problem, deal with the punish, punish the problem versus helping cure and heal the problem. You so symptom versus cause. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what it has always, that's why we look at the criminal justice system today. You find so many people in the system broken to this day. They leave the system broke because we are not trained to be able to address it in that capacity. So at 17 years old, I'm sitting in this system, um, still maybe like five, maybe uh, right about eight months after my mom's passed away. I'm now sitting inside of a, a prison system. And now I'm going through this whole phase. And only thing the correction officer was telling me is that give them 10 push-ups, give them 20 push-ups. I have to go run a mile, shine my boots, you know, make sure that my beds are, 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 are with a 90-degree angle, making sure that my underwear is everything lined up. It was almost like a military boot camp type thing. But no one never asked me, like Mr. Young, what's wrong with you? What caused yeah. you to make the choice? And that was, I felt like if that was that time, I, they had 90 days of my life there, that that conversation could have been held, uh, but I never had it. I never had that conversation because people are just trained to address the action and not trying to look at the symptom of the cause of the problem. Yeah, and that's fascinating insight, Lester. And so tell us, so when you're you're now 19, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we know that you, you went on to serve 22 years for, for the murder uh, of another man. Tell us about that night as to what happened. Mm. That was a, a night that, again, you don't, I didn't wake up and said, I'm going to take a person's life. I'm not going to, you know, that was not my attitude that day it happened. It, funny thing, it happened, not funny, but uh, it happened on a Christmas Eve night uh, where, again, I woke up, went to work with my father for a few hours, came back home with no intentions of doing anything. We was going to be celebrating Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. 
And I was hanging out with friends all that day. We smoking weed, doing the normal stuff that teenagers do, selling drugs a little bit. But for me, I chose not to sell. I was actually, the funny thing is, I was actually in the process of stop selling drugs. I had stopped selling drugs almost like two months before this incident happened because it was too many things happening in my life that was telling me that I needed to step back from it. So for a while, I just like stopped selling drugs. I still hung out on the block with my friends, still smoke a little weed and still drink, drinking, but I stopped actually selling drugs. And this particular night, this individual came with the intent to purchase drugs. And he purchased it from a friend of mine, not necessarily me, but in the process of person purchasing the drugs from one of my friends, the, the guy snatched my friend's arm and attempted to drag him down the road uh, for the drugs. He had no intentions of buying the drugs. He just wanted to rob, steal the drugs. Okay. You know, so he grabbed my friend's arm, and I just shot into the car, hoping that he released my friend, which he eventually did. A few hours later, we found out that he was shot, and he died from from, from one of the bullets. And that and that was the, the chain of that events just continued to unfold. And just, as I said, I found myself in prison, not only that, but I found an individual uh, had lost his life as a result of the decision I made in pulling that trigger. Yeah, and so as a 19-year-old, I mean, obviously, we're only talking from 16 from your mum passing. Mm-hmm. You know, you enter into this criminal um, sort of lifestyle, if you like, or being, being sort of troubled. And when you get convicted at 19, you know, you shot into a car and, and someone died. You know, the, the law says that you took someone's life and then you're incarcerated for yeah. 20 years. At the time you're incarcerated, your sentence was 20 years. With an eligibility of parole after serving 20 years. After serving 20 yeah. years. Yeah, okay. you serve 20 years, then you go in front of the parole board and they decide if they're going to grant you parole or not. And so that first night when you go into to prison, uh, what are you... What, what are you reflecting on? Are you reflecting on from when your mum died? Are you reflecting on from the, the, the trial and conviction? Are you challenging yourself? How did I get here? I mean, what, yeah, where, where's your mind on that first night? That first night inside, it was like, again, disbelief. Like, it was an overwhelming disbelief. Like, yo, I can't believe that my life has made this turn. I made this turn in my life, and there's no going back. There's no, the road ahead is completely, it's, it's bellows upon bellows of darkness. It's no, it's no light on this in this tunnel. And now I have to walk this tunnel, you know, and knowing that in this side of this tunnel, there's so much emotions that I'm gonna have to face. I'm gonna have to face my mother. I'm gonna have to face my victim. I'm gonna have to face my family. I have to face his family in this dark tunnel. You know, I have to go into this tunnel and and find some light. And that light is beginning to take ownership for the decision which I made start healing from not the 19-year-old, but start healing the 16-year-old boy who was wounded, who led to a lot of poor decisions. That was the biggest challenge for me is how do I heal the wounded 16-year-old, not the 19-year-old. The 19-year-old was only a reflection of the 16-year-old pain. So how do I fix him? How do I heal him inside of a prison system where you don't have the tools, you don't have the counselors, you don't have nothing? What could I do to heal this situation, this 16-year-old person, so I can begin to build my life in a different way. And that's when I began addressing that issue with my yeah, And it's interesting. And one of the things you said to me, Lester, when we're talking is that, you know, so once you come to that realization that, okay, I'm here for a minimum of 20 years, what am yeah. I going to do? I want to move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you as an individual, you know, you sought out assistance from the criminal justice system, but mm-hmm. because you're a violent offender, yeah. uh, for someone like me being you know, outside of, of that world, 
I, I would anticipate that if a prisoner is saying, I want to better myself, I want to change, as mm -hmm. you said earlier, those are the very people that I would want you to be able to be given assistance. But you said that the, the system wasn't set up for that and you were denied the opportunity to see a counsellor and some of these things to help understand you know, what made me do these things, what, what caused me to be here. Yeah, I mean, think. I mean, when I went into the system, it was like 1992. Uh, this was an era from from the early 90s to the late 2000s. There was this era of crime and punishment. It was no rehabilitation. It was about punishment. That was the whole political agenda for presidents. Everyone was upon get tough on crime, lock them up, throw away the keys, and they're damaged good. We don't need to. We don't need to put no time and energy in. In 1994. The anonymous crime bill was signed where they removed Pell education, they removed the they scripted the budget when it came down to uh rehabilitation programs, counselors, they script that bill where it left prison with just prison guards, just to guard people. That's it. It was nothing else, it was no treatment, and there was nothing there. And so going back again as a 19-year-old person who's now placed in a system that is full of despair and brokenness, how do you repair the system? It's called corrections, meaning you should be able to correct a person's behavior, but it wasn't set up that way. And it was very disheartening to be sitting inside of a prison cell and dealing with these different emotions every day, every night. You, you're trying to process them. You don't have the tools. You don't have the education to be able to help you navigate and find out how do I do this time? And it's not about trying to get out of it in a physical way. How do I deal with this stuff emotionally? How do I address this in, inner issues that are going on in me that led to this decision? How do I process guilt knowing that I've taken a person's life? You know, how do I process having the spirit of this person with me for the rest of my life that I took his life? How do I process knowing that I took a, a, a man, a father, a husband, a brother away from someone? How do I process that? And that stuff could drive you crazy inside of a system. And it was unfortunate no one was there to listen to my cry. So I had to turn to journaling. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I don't know, I can't talk for what the criminal justice system um, is like now and how those incarcerated are treated with education and support mm -hmm. systems. But it sounds very much like at the time, 1992, that you said under the, the political era, yeah. it was really um, lock them up and throw away the key mm -hmm. because the members of society think, OK, well, you know, Lester is a young guy, um, trouble, you know, took a person's life. He's going to pay the, the penalty. He's got a service minimum of 20 years. During those 20 years, the prison system is going to help him. They're going to support him. They're going to grow him. And then when he comes out, he's going to be rehabilitated. And, you know, there's, he's going to skip through the, the strawberry fields and everything's going to be happy. He's going to come out a different person. But it sounds like none of that support network was, was there. So it's a question of, you know, they, they were getting out of it. What they were putting into it is, you know, you can't, re, you can't rehabilitate people if you're not investing in and like I said, that is going back to 1992, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing yeah. the year it was at the time. That's when I went in. I went in in 1992 when violent offenders, uh, everything was, you know, from the governor's race to the prison directors to the presidents to anyone in political power, it was tough on crimes. Lock them up, throw away the keys. So as I said, I'm in this system where now all of the educational programs are scripted. And if they are available, they're only for nonviolent offenders. Here's a 19, 20-year-old person in there with a seventh grade, seventh grade level of education inside of this prison system with a 20 years possibility before he even does parole, meaning that I'm going to be in this system for a long time. I'll become an old man inside of this system, right? So why wasn't there a system in place to help individuals like myself in there? You know, um, but it was just 
something that some of us had to create. We had to, many of the lifers, we created our own programs. Yeah, and I want to talk about Lester, because one of the reasons, you know, when I read your your book, The Five Stages of Incarceration, when, when you went in there, and I don't know if it was uh, where you got the statistic from, but you said there was a 3% chance of you receiving parole. Is that right? Yeah. And I know, I know that you then wanted to get up to, you know, 90%, 93% to give yourself a chance of parole. So you were doing everything possible to, to, to sort of better yourself. So maybe talk to us a bit about what that looked like. What do those 20 years look like for you uh, while you're incarcerated? Those 20 years was about healing for me. It was not necessarily, I knew I had a 3% chance of ever being released from prison, you know, because of the crime was a murder. Um, it was happening in South Carolina. I shot a white male in South Carolina. I didn't know what the state, what it, well, not the state, but the position of his family when it came to, uh, Ever me even making parole every time because when you have when you have a murder you have a victim and his family they're the ones that advocate for you to never get out of prison and I've known guys have done 35 years 40 years in prison and it's all because you know they continue this time because their victims family continue to stand against them and not making parole so that's when we come to that three percent people who commit murder in 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 any state um, particularly in South Carolina your chances are you may get out when you maybe done 40 years inside of a prison system. So it was kind of rare for me to make parole at 22. But I, my whole intent while I was in prison was not just about parole, it was about trying to find redemption inside of prison. It was about trying to break away from find freedom, a mental freedom. For so long I was living, I had two prisons already. I was in a mental prison and I was in a physical prison. But I believe that if I can break out of the, the mental prison, I will be able to survive the physical prison because after that, it's mind over matter, right? So this is where I began that, in that dark tunnel, as I mentioned earlier, living in this dark tunnel, I had to go back to the 16-year-old boy. I had to go back to him. I had to talk to him. And by talking to him, I began to heal him. And from healing that 16-year-old boy through journaling, learning how to just journal and be disciplined with that, I started healing the 16-year-old. And then from the 16-year-old, 17 to 18 and 19-year-old, now I can have that conversation with a 19-year-old person who shot shot and killed someone. Like, we're, we're kinda, we have to have a conversation. Like, I understand why you, the 19-year-old is hurting because I was hurt as a 16. And you follow that? It was... And that's when I began that process, when now I'm able to talk to my victim spirit. I'm now able to atone. I'm able to acknowledge what I did was wrong because I started healing myself. Yeah, and one of the things I know in any criminal justice system, there's where the naysayers on both sides. It can either be people, counsellors and people that you come across either are just sort of beaten down by the system, you're never going to get out of here. Yeah. All the other prisoners are saying, hey, you know, you're Lester, you're you're a lifer. Why why are you doing this stuff? You know, you, you're not going anywhere. You're here for 30, 35 years. Maybe talk to us a bit about how do you overcome some of those negative hurdles inside the criminal justice system? One of the things that how I was able to come, overcome these hurdles, I have to always go back to the 16-year-old. At 16, I lost my voice. At 16, I lost my voice. That meant I, I, I gave that power to someone else. I allowed my peers, family, anyone to speak for me and lead me. So when at 19, I began to heal the 16-year-old, that 16-year-old, when he started healing, when he healed, he found his voice. And that voice gave me now, the, gave me to be able the ability to walk in my own authority to take claim of my life. So when individuals saw me reading a book, when individuals saw me walking, going to school, or when they saw me teaching this out of the prison and they was like, man, why are you doing this? You would never get out of prison. It was not about getting out of prison. It was that I found a purpose inside of prison. And I'm going to use, I'm going to maximize my time inside of prison to better myself with the help of the individuals who have an opportunity at freedom. 
You see what I'm saying? That was the whole the whole mission for me is to now, it's not about allowing you to control my life because I did that at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. I reclaimed my voice at 17. So I was able to create this callus. I was able to put this callus on my mind to ignore all the naysayers when people would laugh. Say, oh man, you're gonna you're gonna never get out of jail, man. Like, man, you killed the white guy in South Carolina. You're never getting out of jail. Uh, this is gonna happen to you. People with life sentence don't forget. You gotta do 30, 40 years. You think you're gonna make it in 20 years? That callus was so thick on my mind, and I was so focused on my purpose, it didn't really matter what they said. And these same naysayers that that told me that it was not possible, I ended up leaving them in prison, and they're now writing asking me to help them get out of prison. How how does that? How did you do it? You know, and it's all about telling them that you have to follow those five steps that I I, I laid out to you. The classes I taught in prison, I I gave you the blueprint, but you choose to listen to others. So he or that person have to reclaim their voice. And yeah, and I think it's like you said earlier, something about you know, there's two sentences. There's the there's the, the, the sentence as in you're in here for 20 years, mm -hmm. and there's a sentence in your mind as in what am I going to do? And and it sounds like that you really you overcame sort of both of those mm -hmm. obstacles by realizing it's not about how do I get out, it's about how do I become a better person, how do I find redemption, how do I find forgiveness, um, and how do I find transformation in some of the yeah. things that we're doing. But I know that you also had a good sponsor or you had someone that really took an interest in you and i know you said a quote about uh, a police chaplain provided you the opportunity to showcase your skills so maybe tell us about the program that you developed whilst in prison to help other prisoners well i had i was blessed to be uh be able to build relationships with the prison chaplains during my entire incarceration but there was this one chaplain uh, at the latter part of my incarceration, his name is uh, Chap Gerald Gerald Batoka. Chap, we call him Chaplain Batoka. Uh, he was at this prison, uh, Kershaw, and he was doing a lot of reentry stuff already. He created programs. He had a transitional house on the outside, and someone told him about me. He was like, "Hey, man, you need to talk to this guy named Lester because I was at another prison where he was. He teaches a lot of class. He was teaching finance. I was teaching financial literacy class, entrepreneurship class, essential life skill class." How to build your credit after incarceration? Just for me, reading, becoming an avid reader. I just like I say, we've got to put this in perspective. That you're a guy from 16 was in the criminal justice system, convicted at 19, and you're teaching entrepreneur classes and finance yeah. classes. I mean, that maybe that shows the level of depth that you went to to try and better yourself. Yeah, it was, it was, it was. Those are the things that I knew I was missing. That 16 year old boy was missing. He was missing these these keys, these key essential ingredients to helping him become better. And because he didn't have it, he made the 19-year-old made the poor decisions that pulled the trigger that now I'm sitting in prison and the family's grieving. So everything I created was about how do I lift this 16-year-old person back, this teenager who was who was sitting in a corner for years with no voice, no authority, no, no, no nothing, no guidance, just sitting there waiting for somebody to pull him up. And everything that I created was about shaping in him and strengthening him because I know as a, once I heal him at 16. I'm able, no matter how, I can be, I'm 47 now and I'm healed and stronger because the 16 year old broken boy is now healed. And then, so you met this police chaplain and started to teach these um, yeah. classes. And is this when you created the five stages of incarceration? Do you yeah. want to talk about the book and maybe walk us through what those five things, those five things yeah, are? Yeah, I started, I started this book uh, by journaling. I started journaling. I, wa I was watching an Oprah Winfrey show one day and she was talking about gratitude. And here that was maybe six years into my incarceration. Uh, trying to find ways to be grateful, um, stop, seeing, stop seeing prison as just a dark place, but trying to create my own light in prison. So I started writing five things down every day, 
and every night before I go to bed about gratitude. What am I grateful for inside of prison? And I started writing my story. I started talking to this 16-year-old person. The first days that I realized I was in was the self-denial. That self-denial was the anger, not anger, but the grief that I was going through. I was, in, I, was in, I was in denial about the grief of the loss of my mother, which was the first stage of my book, the first stage, is, first stage of incarceration. The second stage was anger. I felt, I realized that because there was, a, I was in denial about that, that grief, that, that pain of losing my mother turned into anger. And then that anger turned to an entitlement, a victimization type mindset where there was no empathy. Like when I had, when I was convicted of murder, I showed no empathy. I showed no remorse for my crime because it was all covered from this particular incident of me being in denial, being angry. And I realized that this is where I need to begin. And then I looked at it and inside of prison, I saw it was two levels in prison. There's a recriminalization, there's the decriminalization. What is recriminalization? I saw guys were coming to prison and they were learning how to commit new crimes. Be better they, criminals. Yeah, they became better criminals. And I was like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that guy that learns how to commit a crime. I don't want to be that guy to spend time reading books about how to become a better criminal. I wanted to find that level of incarceration, the decriminalization, where my error in my thinking, my criminal thinking needed to change. And that's when I started creating the five stages for, from self-denial, anger, to victimization. Those three stages, I realized that most of the men and women inside of a prison system, they cycle back and forth in there. And that's why the recidivism rate is high, because one, they don't address their issues of denial, addiction, abuse, abandonment, molestation, whatever they endure, sexual abuse. And then that turns into anger. Anger turns into this shame. And then there's a victimization. It's all me. I'm entitled to this. Those three stages or that recriminalization stage, the last two stages I figured out was forgiveness. Forgiveness is a very powerful thing. You know, not only see, I, not only I need to seek forgiveness from, from the people I harmed, their, his family, Gary's family, but I had to seek forgiveness for myself. I had to forgive. I had to, like, let the 19-year-old at this time Forgive him for punishing the 16-year-old. I had to learn how to forgive him. You know what I'm saying? How do I process that forgiveness? And when I started processing that level of forgiveness, I went to the fifth stage, which was transformation. This is where my world completely changed. I started seeing the prison system is not a punishment for me. It was an opportunity for me, one, to live a life different, two, to honor the person that I took off this earth. How do I honor him, his family, by not allowing my name to be associated with anything that is remotely close to what I did when I was 19 years old. I never wanted his family to look in a newspaper and say Lester's in prison and he got caught selling drugs in prison. Or Lester's, you know, I never wanted my name to be in that way. If anything, I always wanted to be associated with something positive. If the data family would ever want to come talk to me, I don't want that bad, I don't want a bad image of who I used to be to, to change them from ever forgiving me. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that I found in your your book, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and I'd really urge people to, to go and um, buy the book, The Five Stages of Incarceration, but there, there was a big piece, and you know that in England, you know, I was a detective, uh, and I'd put people in prison for, for many years. Uh, but one thing I'd never really sort of acknowledged too much until reading your book was use the statement about in violent crime as the offender, it's almost like a divorce, uh, where people separate and they've got children that you are tied to that victim's family forever. Uh, and that really resonated with me because I'd never really heard that before. So maybe tell us a bit, Lester, about how that sort of, when you had that realization that you actually, you were, you were tied to your victim's family for yeah. the rest of your life. I am. I'm, I'm, I was responsible for taking their loved one from this earth. Regardless of how I want to justify, I was the one that pulled the trigger 
and this person died. And his spirit will forever, I will forever be connected to his spirit. And my name will always be connected to his family spirit, to his family, because I was known the person that take that person's life. And that was heavy for me. That was heavy. When I, when I got into that stage of shifting, I was like, man, I can't believe I did. That was too heavy. It was too heavy to know that I'm, that's a, a great burden to hold in your spirit that you are connected not only to his family, you're connected to his spirit of, and, and his demise. And, I ha- and the only way I could really make peace with that is that I have to seek forgiveness from him. Yeah, uh, and that's you know, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to to hear you hear you say that. But but the connection, I guess, that ties into the sort of the, the fifth stage with the the transformation. So, mm-hmm. what a lot of people are mostly thinking, in, in as you mentioned earlier, in a dark world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm talking about dark world, I mean meaning the, the judicial system and being in a prison. How mm-hmm. do you find transformation? I mean, maybe do you mind sharing how you came to faith inside the prison system? It was, again, through those first three stages. Once I was able to work through those first three stages, figured out what am I in denial about, who am I, you know, address those anger issues that I had, and knowing that the anger was not something externally, it was something internally going on with me, and and, and, and remove this entitlement, like, I'm the victim. I, I, I caused someone to lose their life. I caused someone to grow up without a father. So I'm not the victim when it comes to me being sentenced to life in prison for murder, right? So once I was able to make those connections, man, everything else changed for me that now I started seeing the value. Like I said, I was seven, I was 19 years old uh, all the way until I was, yeah, reading at a seventh grade level of education. That's my, that was the highest, never read a book that I struggled with reading a book, struggled with learning new words. And I remember a prison chaplain named uh, uh, Robert Scotland. He was one of the first prison chaplains who took an interest in me in the early 90s. And he gave me a book called As a Man Think It's by James Allen. And he said, Lester, read this book. And he said, uh, if you struggle with any of the words, get you. He gave me a Webster dictionary and a notebook. He said, write the words down and write it out, the definition, and continue to repeat it until you learn what that word means. He said, don't allow one word to prevent you from reading a book that can change your life. And I remember I read that book and I took notes out of that book. I wrote the words that I didn't understand. That was the beginning process for me of that transformation. So transformation started right here in that mind. Yeah, and quite often in life, we don't want to feel this is true, but you have to fight and push yourself above. When, when there's adversity, mm-hmm. you've got to stand up and be counted. And, and maybe what I'm going to say is wrong, um, Lester, but you can tell me or not. But it, it really sounds like because your mindset was right, that I want to improve, I want to get better, it opened your network to those inside the prison that recognized that these chaplains that saw you as somebody who wants to change mm-hmm. and they came along and actually supported you. And part of the transformation was allowing those people in there to help yeah. people like you actually place faith in you. And it comes back to when you said they provided you the opportunity to, to see your skills. And I know in your book, there is mm-hmm. one of the four words is from one of the, the police chaplains. I'm sure mm-hmm. within that system, they're looking for people that are, seeking out that support in the system not just someone who's going through emotions or just now nah, i'm not not interested you know so uh, it's fascinating i mean do you tie that as part of your transformation as well that people place faith in you yeah it is definitely i mean if it because for, for the first time i believe in my life outside of my father that i saw someone that saw value in me and that's huge you know you're coming from a broken person and now someone's seeing something that you don't see in yourself. Someone saying that, man, I see something in you and I believe in you and I'm going to invest in you. 
those are words that a person wanted to hear for so long. You know, you want to hear, especially as a young man who's out there doing the things that you're doing in the streets, you're looking for someone to say, man, I value you. You, you have, you know, you have something there. And that's what each one of these people that I met in my journey, they told, it kept reminding me that you have something. You know, you, you, you ain't here for life, but you have something and you can make this the best situation in your life. And people told, kept telling me that. And I started believing it. I started for so long. I remember in this two year process, I never wanted to look myself in the eye in the mirror. You know, as you look in my book, I mentioned one of the exercises is called the man in the mirror, look the mirror exercise. For years I sat in prison because I was so broken, so full of shame. I, I couldn't look myself eye to eye in the mirror when I was in prison for a couple of years, I just would brush my teeth and never give eye contact in the mirror. So I, even when I spoke to other people, I could never give them eye contact because again, I was so broken and I didn't want them to see that broken person. So I never gave eye contact until one day I was brushing my teeth and something told me, lift your head up and look at yourself. Look in that mirror and look at yourself. And when I did, I, I, saw, I saw that person. I saw a person that was broken that I never wanted the world to see. I did not want the world to see this broken person. I wanted to betray always a tough exterior person. That's why I did the things that I did. I dressed the way I did. I had money. I did everything to create these distractions from seeing that broken person. But once I looked in that mirror and I started believing what the chaplains and my mentors and other people, like my homies who used to be in prison with me, that told me, said, man, you're going to be different. I believe in you. Those words started saturating my spirit and started giving me hope in the in the layers and layers of darkness. I finally heard the words that you have something. You're great. You can be somebody different. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, is there a key time when God showed up in your life and, and perhaps maybe it was that last statement you just said? Yeah. God always showed up. I mean, from it's it's been God placed people even in in that dark moments, God placed people in my journey that just lifted my spirits up, that told me that I could do it. Like one of my homeboys, David Brown, I mentioned in the book, he was one of those guys that I remember buying drugs from when I was out there. Me and him was actually selling drugs together. I looked up to this guy. I walked into the prison. This guy was, he was a preacher. <laughs> he, was, he was there preaching. The drug did on the outside, preacher inside the prison. Yeah. Okay. He changed his life. And I'm like, who are you? It took me a while to process him. But I always, I always give him credit because he was one of the only homeboys that I had that told me, look at these guys here serving life sentence and look how their life has ended up in the last 10 years. And you want your life to be this way. And I told him, no. He said, you need to go in that room and start reading. You don't need to be nowhere, nowhere on, this, on this prison compound other than your room bettering yourself. Stay away from the stuff that has destroyed people and try to focus on the things that you need. And I started listening to him because he believed in me. He was not encouraging me to sell drugs. He was telling me, man, that you can survive this life sentence. And I needed those positive affirmations in my moment of weakness. I needed those positive seeds to tell me that it's going to be possible through prayer. And, I, and yeah, through all of those things, I just, it started growing on me. And so what about um, forgiveness then of yourself? Let's start there first. Is that part of the five stages to, to seek that forgiveness? I mean, what does that look like for someone that, you know, you have with your mother uh, the following day that she passed away you know you take someone else's life you've mm -hmm. got this minimum 20-year um, sentence I mean what, what does it take for someone to forgive themselves for, for those acts Ooh, that's a lot it's a lot it's a lot it's a it's, it takes a lot of 
real honesty about the mistakes that you made and, and not deny, not being in denial about them, not lying to yourself. See, we can lie to ourselves. There's a narrative that we can create in our head and we can put it on replay that you convince, convince yourself that you're this wonderful person. But I and, and forgiving self, I had to change that narrative. I was like, bro, let's see, you did some, some effed up stuff. What you did was wrong, bro. And you need to own that. You need to take ownership for this, you know. And the only way you can take ownership for you have to, again, like I said for years, I never even mentioned my victim's name, Gary. I would say they said I killed this person. I will always deflect it from me. Never wanted to take on per, take it personally, like put him in my spirit. And once I, uh, that forgiveness allowed me to put him in my spirit because I was willing to say, man, you messed up. And I wrote like letters to myself, man. I wrote journals, like journals, like my journal here is like letters that I would write asking myself like to forgive me you know i would spend days just writing a letter to myself like i forgive you for when you were 16 years old you walked out of the house and didn't say anything to your mom i forgive you for not for not showing emotions i forgive you for not taking care of your sisters you know i left three sisters when i I made the choice to go and sell drugs i I left them and didn't really take care of them because i was in my own issues so i had to write a letter of forgiveness to myself say man what you did to your sister was wrong but i forgive you for that and I had to write a letter to my sisters asking them to forgive me because what I did, that was all part of the healing process. I had to, it was this constant pulling the layers back of all of the wrongs that I did. I had to like apologize to myself. And then that apology went to the next person who I've wronged. And I had to be honest with it. And, and it was not about getting a letter back and saying, oh, I forgive you. I love you. We can go and dance into the sunset. No, it was about being honest and releasing that and knowing that I released it into the universe. And a lot of those letters, a lot of those letters I never sent out. I kept them in my journal. It was about me just releasing that into, into the universe and praying over them and hoping that one day I would find peace with it, which I did over time. Yeah, and that's a key um, point that you said there, but it doesn't have to be about sending those letters out. You know, you just, they were just for you to know that you can get to that um, place in your mind. But I guess, so what about the forgiveness of those that you might have, have hurt? I mean, we've, we've sort of touched on, on your family, but what about Gary's um, family, yeah, Gary's have. parents and siblings? I mean, how, how do you seek forgiveness from someone's life that you've taken? Praying. It was a lot of praying. It was a lot of praying, a lot of fasting, because like I said, you that's, that's a wound that they would always live with for the rest of their life, man. You know, until they leave this earth, they will live with that, that missing piece. So I know that there was no words adequate enough to be able to express my remorse. It would have to, my forgiveness from them would have to be an act of God. God would have to place in their heart, soft in their heart. So it was not about focusing on them. Is that I knew what I did was wrong. I, had, I spent many nights praying to God to soften their hearts. For one, to have a conversation with me so that I can verbally let them know that I, I, I'm deeply remorseful because during my trial, I didn't show remorse. I didn't show remorse. I was just 19, arrogant, prideful. But to ask God to soften their hearts to one day when a conversation, when we're able to have a conversation, I would be mature enough, my ego, my pride is out of the way, I would be humble enough to be able to accept anything that they give me. If they would just spit in my face, I would have to be humble enough because I know that's coming from pain. I would be humble. I have to be hum- had to be humble enough asking God to say that if they said, I'd have never want to see you alive again, I wish you would die. I would have to accept that because that was coming from pain that I caused them. You see, so it was just about a lot of prayer asking God to soften their hearts. So a lot of the letters that I wrote, it was letters of me confessing in my, out of my, in, in a spiritual way. And eventually I believe that God changed their hearts. 
Now, did you send them those letters? Because oh, I, I know in South Carolina there's some legislation, isn't there, about being able to contact yeah. the victims. But maybe we'll talk about from when you actually became eligible for parole, the first time you, you didn't get parole, mm -hmm. but the second time you did, and Gary's family didn't actually object to you being released, which sort of ultimately was a, a strong factor in why, why you got released. And uh, maybe we start talking a bit about what's happened um, post-prison and maybe talk about you've actually met some of Gary's Gary's family and had the opportunity. You you ran an event where someone came yeah. um, and heard, heard you speak. I was um, hosting an event in my hometown, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, I was doing a youth event called The Power of Choices, sharing with some young, young youth, young men, about the power of choices and how choices can determine where you're going in life. Mine was bad and it caused me to be in prison. So this event got some media attention uh, on the local news news um, station and newspaper. So his family stays still stay in this area. So they heard about the event and one of his uh, one of his uh, sisters showed up at the event. And as I was talking and doing my PowerPoint presentation about the um, about the power of choices, I had a, a section in there talking about Gary at the time and about how that choice affected his family, not knowing that his family was going to be in this, in this gathering. But as I was talking to it, I just like scanning the crowd and I saw this woman in, in the back and she was crying. And I'm like, why is she crying? Like, you know, I, it, it didn't connect that yeah. his sister. And after I got through, she, one of my friends came and was like, Hey man, this lady want to talk to you. I don't know. He's like, I think she is kin to that guy. I was like, at first, I was like, nah, I can't go because I didn't know how that was going to come off. But remember, I said in my prayer, I asked God to allow me to be humble enough to accept whatever. in that house. Yeah. So she walked to me. She walked to me. And within distance, she placed her arms around me. And that was wow. a shocker to me. I was like, whoa, you know, this is like really happening. This is a prayer that I sent up 10 years ago. I sent this prayer 10 years ago, and I prayed for it ever since. And wow. here it is. This woman reached and she hugged me and she said, we forgive you. I was like, we, she said, my family forgave you a long time ago. She said today, just hearing you speak and seeing the life that you, you have taken, she said that uh, you have made me proud. And she said, I have no regrets for forgiving you the time that I did forgive you. And we talked for a few minutes uh, about some other stuff that was personal about what happened and stuff like that. And it was, it was finally uh, a sense of relief that, you know, I heard those words, something I always wanted to hear, um, and to know that the family uh, had made peace with it. They haven't forgotten about it, but they like, okay, we forgive you for this, and please, and she whispered, like, please do not stop doing what you do. You know? Now, Lester, I mean, you're, you're, a, you're a big guy, and you haven't really shared about the emotion in there, but I mean, how, how were you emotionally? And you don't have to say you were crying if you don't want to no, say you were crying. I mean, how were you when, you, when you're confronted was, with was, your victims? A wreck emotionally, you know, it was like, like I said, this is a prayer that I said, I'm like an alley-oop I sent up 10 years ago, right? And all I did, you know, throughout my prayers and fasting, I will always ask God to soften the heart. And this came to me the way it did. It affected me. It affected me on a deep level emotionally. You know, it's not just tears. It was just something internally in me that just let me know that it was okay to cry. It was a, finally an opportunity to breathe, man. You know, when you got a spirit, when you got somebody's spirit on you, man, people don't understand it, but when you got someone else's spirit, someone else's spirit sitting in you, in your, in, in your being, every day, you carry that. 
I, I don't know. One of the things that you mentioned that you sadly didn't get to um, say goodbye to was um, Gary's father. So maybe talk us a bit about. I know that's one of the, the sort of the, the pains that you did you, that you do carry. But he passed yeah. away before you could talk to him. Yeah, that was like a little disappointing for me. Um, I remember because I'm on a lifetime parole in South Carolina and their policies that you can't intentionally meet a person. Now, if we accidentally bump in, that's cool. But uh, I had mentioned to my parole agent, I'm like, hey, um, I've gotten some comp some information from uh, someone that Gary's father want to sit down and talk to me. And I said, I really need to talk to this guy. I really need to talk to his father. I need to look at his father in his eye and tell him I, I'm sorry. And they were like, no, nah, you can't do it because your parole condition says that you can't have contact with the uh, with the with the victim's family. And I'm like, this is part of the he. This is this is something that he's requesting, you know. And they were like, no, you can't do it. And that bothered me. It bothered me to this day because a couple months ago he passed away, and I never got a chance to physically sit at this man's feet and apologize for taking his oldest son. You know, um, and that yeah, and and we yeah. did. And I can say, you know, what struck me about that is the, the layers that you have to unpack here within this story, you know, sort mm -hmm. of, you know, troubled youth, you know, takes a life of someone else, there's incarceration, there's redemption, there's transformation, there's forgiveness in there. But at every time there, it comes back to you saying you're connected to the, the victim family. But mm -hmm. even for them, there's more pain. But even the, the father of your victim wants to have this face-to-face -face and, mm -hmm. and, and conversation. And they can't buy law. And I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I'm yeah. just saying that there, there, there's more pain in there that shows that you're always tied to that, that family. And, and there's, there's always, there's so many just layers to unpack here. Yeah. of emotions that it, that it causes but he he couldn't get the closure that he needed because the law yeah. prevents him to as well interesting. so we end up doing a video of me like the television journalist he interviewed me speaking about the incident that night and me apologizing to his father so after my interview the guy took it to gary's father and said hey this is the only way that he's able to say it and he saw it you know, so he verbally heard me eventually, you know, saying these words. Um, but that's it. And that's the thing that when we're talking about healing and, and redemption, restorative justice in our country, we understand the punishment piece, but there should be a, a, a time for reconciliation and atonement and restoration. There's nothing there in certain states. There's nothing there to help people heal. So it's all about how, how do we change these policies? And that's one of the things that I focus on now in South Carolina it's changing some of these policies because not every family who lost a loved one don't want to have contact. Some families want to have that have that line of communication to see what happened. They want to talk. They want to they want to look that person in the eye. And it's not about hate. It's not about anger. They just want to understand it. And that's closure for them. So we got people who live without this closure for years, and it sits in their spirit. Like my spirit, I sit with their um the family. Their closure comes maybe sitting down and talk to that person who harmed their loved one. You know, yeah. he proved himself. That's part of that healing process. And what did it mean for you, Lester, to be able to even just give that that video for Gary's father to, to say that you were sorry? I, I finally got a chance to do it. That's Again, remember I said 10 years of me praying for this and to be able to know that God softened the father's heart, the father, and says, hey, and, he, and his video, I think some of you can pull it up online, but his father says that he knew something that changed me because he heard about me changing. The father heard about it. He didn't physically see it, but he heard about it. And in his interview, he says that 
he said, there's something changed about him in prison. I want to know what that is. You know, he wanted to know, like, yeah. what, what changed you from this night? transformation? Yeah, what, what happened there? Did God change you? He wanted to know what it was. And I said it in the video to him what happened, you know, but I wanted to tell him in person what happened. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. And so tell us about sort of post-prison, um, you know, what, what have you been doing? You've been out, I think you said six years now. You said yeah. just, just celebrate your sixth year of, of freedom. I know when we spoke, I asked you about what were your hobbies and interests. And you said, well, Simon, I'm, I'm still trying to work out what it is, but, but I enjoy doing so. That, that fascinated me. I've been telling a few friends and hey, this guy, you know, it, it's hard, isn't it? I'm sure when you've been um, in the, the criminal justice system for so young to work out, well, well, what do I enjoy doing? But tell us about your, your organization, Path to Redemption. After Redemption is uh, an organization I started while I was in prison. Uh, God gave me this vision inside of prison, um, and I began writing a vision, uh, a business plan with my mentor, Rick Jordan, inside of prison before I was released, maybe five years before I even knew I was going to be released from prison. He just told me to put it on paper, and maybe it will come through. And that's what I did. I wrote the idea for Path of Redemption. Path of Redemption is helping formerly incarcerated people, people who have been affected, impacted by the criminal justice system, process life after prison. And it's all about support group. It's about helping you process what we're talking about forgiveness, because some people are still walking, who have walked out of prison, still are not healed. And it's about how do, you, how do I help you heal with those five stages of incarceration that you have not, you didn't get a chance to read my book, The Five Stages of Incarceration While You're in Prison, but let me show you these stages of incarceration, post-incarceration, so you can begin to heal, so you can show up better at work, you can show up better in your your religious community, you can show up better up in your mentoring program, your marriage, your, your relationship with your children. Let me show you how to show up better. Because that's basically what my program is about, helping people show up better who have been impacted by the, uh, the criminal justice system. And how can people get hold of you, Lester, if they want to learn more? Uh, you can go to my website, path2redemption.org, and you can send me an email to learn more about it. You can see some of the body of work that I've done, that I've posted uh that i've been doing for the last six years about really just trying to empower others especially our youth and not making the decisions in which i made and i share that story about you know are you prepared to live with the spirit of another human being for the rest of your life are you really prepared for that are you prepared to live with that person sitting on your bunk every night going to the shower with you every night he's in your in your head every night are you prepared for that and i realized with that story it helps a lot of our young boys and girls who are making that choice, thinking that, you know, just pulling the trigger is something to do, but understanding that when you pull the trigger, there's consequences to that. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.